Well, it's um, fantastic to be with you this morning, church. Do get your Bibles open. We're going to be reading in a second from Ephesians 4. Um, and if this is your first time here, then can I extend my own welcome? It is wonderful to have you here. Um, you've joined us in our fifth and final week in our series, uh, Multiply, looking at the transformative power of multiplying the gospel in our church and in our region. And today we're looking at it, uh, what it is for us to be a disciple-making hub. Um, so Ephesians chapter 4, um, this is the second half of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, um, written from prison about 30 years after Jesus had ascended. Um, and we're reading here about some of the gifts that Christ gives to his church. So Ephesians 4 from verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by, by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, it is wonderful to be with you this morning. As James said, I've been here um, about six months, just long enough for my pronunciation of the name of this city to change. Um, and it has been such a great joy to get to know many of you uh, over these six months. But I'm aware there are many of you in the building this morning who I don't yet know. Um, and I'm, I'd love to connect to you, hear your story. Um, but there's one thing you need to know about me this morning as we delve into this talk. And as I share this one thing, please do um, bear with, please do reserve judgment. Um, but the one thing you need to know about me this morning is this. I am a gift. <laughs> That's not the bit you're supposed to amen. Um, and not only am I a gift, I am God's gift. And not only am I God's gift, I am God's gift to you. You see, God looked at you and he thought, Oh, what can I give them to enrich their life? How can I improve their lived experience? I know, I'll give them Josh. Isn't he great? As Joanna said, we've been at the New Wine Leadership Conference looking at humble leadership this week. Can't you tell? Um, let me restart. Um, I'm Josh, I've been here six months. Some of you I know, some of you I don't. But this I know about you. You are a gift. Not only that, you are God's gift. And not only that, you are God's gift to me and you are God's gift to each other. See, um, God looks at me and he says, what can I give Josh to build him up, to edify him? Well, he's given me you. You see, we are God's gifts to each other. Not only does God give us each gift, he gives us as gifts to one another. Now, I am, I'm the youngest of five kids. Um, please pity me. Um, I've got four older siblings, and I remember distinctly some of the gifts I was given each Christmas by my grandparents. Um, when I was 14, all of my siblings, older siblings, they were all adults. So Christmas came around and Granny and Grandpa gave them each a crate of wine. Very fancy. Four nice bottles of red. Um, but I was 14, so they can't give me wine. So I got the classic, the classic present of a spotty, pubescent teenage boy. 
a Nivea wash bag. Let's go. Um, and this was great. I was buzzing. But this sort of set the tone for what was to come. So when I was 15, they got wine. I got a Nivea wash bag. 16, wine, a Nivea wash bag. 17, a Nivea wash bag. But then the year came. I turned 18. And I was like, this is my year. No more Nivea wash bags. Here we go. Anyway, it gets to Christmas. Granny and Grandpa give Tom, my eldest brother, his wine. Then Rach, her wine. Dan, his wine. Tim, his wine. Then it comes to me. And what do I get? A Lynx Africa wash bag. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, it was an upgrade. But like, what, what on earth was going on, Granny and Grandpa? Why have you given me this? I was supposed to get the wine. I'm 18 now. What is the purpose of this gift? Why have you given it to me? I mean, I haven't even got through the deodorant from last year. Um, but through gritted teeth and a facade of gratefulness, I was thinking, why have you given me this gift? What is the purpose of this gift? What am I to do with it? And if you'll allow me to make the tenuous link, then we can ask the same thing about our passage here. You see, in verse 11, the church is given gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. What on earth are we to do with these gifts? Why does Christ give them to us? And now the answer, in short, is the title of this talk. We are given these gifts, the church is given these gifts by Christ so that we can be a disciple-making hub. Dallas Willard says this, Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. And so a disciple-making hub is one where we become better disciples. We spend more time with Christ. We become like Christ. We do the things that Christ did. And then we invite others into the same thing. We disciple them that they would spend more time with Christ, that they would become more like Christ, and that they would do more of the things that Jesus did. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. And Paul offers us in this passage three hallmarks of a disciple-making hub. Um, and this is church, so they all start with the same letter. Um, and the first is this. If we are to be a disciple-making hub, then we have to be a hub of ministry. Um, and slightly more specifically, a hub of what we're going to call every member ministry. And uh, we're looking here particularly at verses 11 and 12. So do um, cast your eyes down at them so you know I'm not making this up. Um, and if we look at verse 11 and 12, and I was to ask you, which of these verses talks about ministry? I reckon most of us would say verse 11, right? It's talking about pastors, teachers. They're the people we actually, that we, we call them ministers, right? But I want to suggest to us, it's actually verse 12 that's talking about ministry. Um, where we have works of service here, we could just as easily translate, translate that works of ministry. The word for ministry elsewhere in the New Testament is the word for service here. And how does verse 12 start? Who is it that's called to ministry? Well, it says, these gifts are given to equip his people for ministry. You see, Christ gives us these gifts in verse 11 to equip the church, i.e. you, for ministry. You see, if you are in Christ, if you are part of his church, if you are part of his body, if you are part of his bride, then you are a minister in his kingdom, whether you like it or not. You are a worker in his harvest field. You are a priest in his priesthood. See, I can't, I can't just walk up to you and tell you um, what your particular spiritual gifting is. I can't just look, look you in the eyes and know. Um, and by the way, this, this list that we have in Ephesians 4, this isn't an exhaustive list. This isn't a comprehensive list. 
You'll find other lists in um, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, Romans 12. Do look there at another time. But I can't um, just sort of sense what your gifting is from being with you. I can't just um, look at your Enneagram and tell you, ah, apostle. That's one who's sent. I can't just look at your Myers-Briggs and think, ah, evangelist. That's one who proclaims Christ to those who don't yet know him. I can't just um, sense from the energy you're giving off that you're a prophet, one who hears the word of God and foretells it and sometimes foretells it. I can't just tell that you're a pastor or tell that you're a teacher. You see, I can't guarantee that your gifting appears in verse 11, but I can guarantee that your calling appears in verse 12. And what is that calling? Well, it's ministry. And what is ministry? Well, it says, why do we, why do, we do ministry? To build up the body of Christ. It's to edify the church. See, that calling is to serve the person who's sitting next to you, to encourage the person who's sitting in front of you, to confront but not indulge in gossip with the person who's sitting behind you, to pray, to serve, to show up, to show patience. You see, um, ministry, what we're called to here is this, it's to serve one another. And then look at the flow of Paul's reasoning. Um, it would be so easy to misread this passage uh, as this. Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers to build up the body of Christ. That's kind of what we think church is, right? These guys, the staff team, our leaders, the clergy, they're here to build us up. Isn't that great? Um, but that's not what Paul writes. What does Paul write? Look down at it with, it with me. So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip his people, you, so that you would build up the body of Christ. You see, it's on, it's on you. It's on us. It's on each of us. Last week, Mim gave us this beautiful challenge about being salt and light in the world. Um, I loved what she said. She said, we're not the light of the church. We're the light of the world. And she talked about how we have to be in the world for God's glory, but we're in the world, but not of it. You see, we have to go into the world, but we're not discipled by the world. We're not built up by the world. Where are we discipled? It's in the church. And where are we built up? It's in the church. And so we're discipled by one another and we're built up by one another. It's not just for the pastors and the teachers to build up the church. It's not just for Ben, it's not just for Lee, not just for the clergy, it's for everyone. Maybe think of it like this. What we're chasing after ultimately is we want to see the gospel multiplied in our city and our region, right? And to do that, we've got to be in our region and our city. We've got to be in the world, but not discipled by it. We have to be discipled by the church and built up in the church. And whose responsibility to do that? Is it to do that? Well, it's ours, every one of us. If we're to be a disciple-making hub, then we've got to be a hub of ministry, of every member ministry, where we each roll our sleeves up, we get on our hands and knees, and we serve each other, we encourage each other, we challenge each other, um, where we build each other up and disciple each other. What, though, is the purpose of all that? That's point number one, that we're to be a hub of ministry. But what is the purpose of it? Well, that brings us to our second point, which is that we are to be a hub of maturity. Point number one, a hub of ministry. Point number two, a hub of maturity. Now, if you spent any time with me, um, you'll recognise the humour that is me teaching on maturity. Um, 
And so, recognizing the lack of experience I have on this subject matter, I、um, consulted the internet, of course, and I asked Quora,、um, a fantastic website in some ways, "What is maturity?" And、um, one woman wrote this. She wrote three things about maturity. She said, "Firstly, maturity is realizing that you can never choose how someone treats you, but you can always choose how you want to be treated." Maybe true, a bit egocentric. Um, second, maturity is realizing that turning a page is the most beautiful thing you could ever do, because there's so much more to a book than the page you were stuck on. Lovely flowery rhetoric, but again, don't think it really means anything. How about this? Maturity is realizing Cinderella never really wanted a prince. All she wanted was a pretty dress and a night out. Amen, sister.、Um, what is maturity, though? The idea we have in our world is something along these lines. Maturity is becoming an adult, growing up, being a bit dull, becoming a bit boring, becoming a bit meh, becoming a bit ugh. That, my friends, is not the Christian view of maturity. What is maturity according to Paul? What does he tell us in this passage? Well, look at verse thirteen. Maturity, according to the inspired word of God, is this: attaining. To the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Imagine Paul when he's writing this. He's trying to find the words to express what maturity is. The fullness of Christ. Well, that's good. It doesn't quite cut it. The measure of Christ, not quite there. The whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That is what we are called to.、Um, and that may excite you, or it may make you despair, because that is an impossibly big. Task,、um, and if you are despairing, then look in detail at what Paul writes. In verse thirteen and fifteen, he doesn't simply write "be mature." He writes "become mature." See, this is not like a hard taskmaster just looking at you, say, "Do the right thing, grow up, and you'll escape punishment." No, this is a loving God who invites you into a day-by-day process of becoming a little. More like Him every day to become mature, and it's the loving God who gives us His Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit that does the hard yards of making us mature. We just yield to Him. And secondly, on this,、um, becoming mature. When Paul writes that, he's assuming that we're we're going to grow. Like if we can't reach maturity, if we're not that yet there, we don't just try harder. We have to grow. You see, Paul is under the assumption. That we as individuals are going to grow, and that the church is going to grow. And Christ said that the church is going to grow. He said He's going to build it. The assumption here, the expectation, is that the church is going to grow. Yes, in maturity, but in numbers too. And so let's not despair at this impossibly big call, but let's be excited about the invitation that it is to become mature. And second, if you're despairing at how big a task it is, look at who the task is given to. Um, it's the body of Christ. Look at verse thirteen. We're all in unity to reach this maturity. It's together as a corporate body that we are to attain to His fullness. Now, of course, from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us, we each have the fullness of Christ in us, and that is stunning.、Um, but in this passage, particularly, Paul is giving us a corporate call to maturity. And if it's as a body, If it's corporately that we together, you know, by pooling our resources, as it were, attain to the fullness of Christ, 
then what do we do as individuals? Well, I want to say that attaining to corporate maturity is actually found in individual humility. You see, it's in our service of others. It's in our preference of a brother, brother in Christ. It's in our deference to a sister in Christ. You see, if as individuals we recognize the small part that God has given us to play, if as individuals we tend to the little patch of land which God has granted us, if as individuals we hear what God is asking of us and do it, no less but no more, then we trust that God has apportioned gifts among us in such a way that when we bring them all together and serve corporately, we will attain to his fullness and we will reflect his fullness to a world that so desperately needs him. And it shouldn't really surprise us that um, it's in our humility that we attain to Christ's fullness, should it? After all, the one time in scripture where Christ describes his heart, what does he say? I am gentle and humble in heart. You see, it's in serving one another with our gifts and then serving alongside each other with our gifts that we measure up to Christ. You know, none of us is called to be the ultimate apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Yes, we are all called to grow in each area, but it's corporately that we measure up to Christ. Christ, who was the ultimate apostle, sent from heaven to earth to redeem us. The ultimate prophet who heard the voice of the Father and foretold it without error. The ultimate evangelist who went from town to town and city to city, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. He was the ultimate pastor, the one who sat and wept at his friend's suffering and pain. And he was the ultimate teacher who showed us most truly how to live for God. You see, a hub of maturity, where we as a church, as a family, attain to God's fullness and reflect that fullness to the world that so desperately needs him, is a hub inherently of humility, where we each recognise the gifts that God has given us, recognise the patch of land which we are to tend, and diligently labour and exercise our gifting, trusting that together we will reflect him to the world. So as a disciple-making hub then, we're called to be a hub of ministry, a hub of maturity, and thirdly and more briefly, we're called to be a hub of the military. Now, um, as I was writing this talk, I got these first two points down, ministry, maturity. They start with M, right? And I was like, has to, the third point has to start with an M. Um, and this word military came to mind, and I thought, no, that's a bit forced. It's not really in the text. It's just there to sound good. Um, but the more I looked at it, it, it really is. That is actually what Paul is saying. Paul is telling us and reminding us here that we're in a spiritual battle. It's a battle which we know Christ has already won, hallelujah, 2,000 years ago, through his death, his resurrection, his ascension. He won the battle over sin and death, that we can be free from the mastery of sin. But again, as Mim so beautifully explained last week, we live between that moment and in anticipation of the ultimate revelation of that victory. We live in this sort of liminal space, what we call the now and not yet of the kingdom. And in this moment now, we still have to deal with the, the final few vain punches of the enemy that he seeks to land on us. We're in a battle. Look at verse 14. Paul writes that as we seek to attain to this maturity, we will no longer be infants, but we'll grow up so that we will be able to resist every wind of teaching 
and the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Paul is reminding us here of the battle that we're in. He's reminding us of the reality of the enemy of Satan. You see, the word scheming, which we find in verse 14, is only ever used one other time in the whole of Scripture. Two chapters later in Ephesians 6, when Paul writes this, resist the schemes of the devil. You see, this scheming word is inherently a something. It, it emanates ultimately from the enemy. And then look too at some of the words we have. Cunning, craftiness, deceitful. What does that remind you of? I think for me and for most of us, that reminds us of the serpent in the garden, the cunning, the crafty, and the deceitful serpent. Paul is deliberately hearkening back to the beginning of the world, to Genesis 3, to the Garden of Eden, and to the serpent, the enemy there. And we know the story of what happened, but ultimately this is what was going on. In the Garden of Eden, Eve believed the lies of the enemy and she fled from God. Our call here and now in the city of Newcastle is to believe the truths of God and to flee from the enemy. Now, not, not only are we to believe the truths of God, what does Paul write in verse 15? We're to speak out these truths, speak the truth in love. Truth is the content and love is the context, but we're to speak them to ourselves, to one another, to the failing institutions that surround us, to the declining church in our regions, in our region, and even to speak the truths of God to the enemy. But what are these truths? Well, we've sung lots of them that God restores our souls, that his mercies are new every morning, that he fills us daily by his Holy Spirit. Now, these are some of the truths of God. But above that, what is the truth of God? Or rather, who is the truth of God? Well, Jesus said, didn't he? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Paul's exhortation to speak the truth, what's he saying? He says, let's speak Jesus. In our temptation to sin, let's speak Jesus. In the face of injustice, let's speak Jesus. To our friend who we know is stumbling and falling short or struggling, we speak Jesus. To a company culture which is doing everything except honour the Lord, what do we do? We speak Jesus. You see, this is how we become better disciples. And this is how we better disciple others. We speak Jesus. You see, we're in a spiritual battle and we're called to be a hub of the military. We're called to fight. And how do we fight? We fight with and in and through the powerful name of Jesus. Um, let me finish with this. In this passage and um, throughout the New Testament, Paul loves to use this image of the church as a human body. Um, the idea is this, that Christ is the head and that we each are parts. One of us is a hand, one's a foot, one's a oof, vena cava, one's an aorta, one's a retina. You get the picture. I don't know why GCSE biology came back to me. Um, but when, when we look at the church, I don't think we see a functioning human body with Christ at the head. Um, Simon Ponsonby said something along these lines. He said, I don't see a human body functioning with Christ as its head. I see a headless chicken. 
the church, honestly, it's a headless chicken. Yes, it's moving. Yes, it's got some energy. Yes, there's maybe some blood flowing, but it's going in circles and it's not achieving anything. It's lost its head. It's lost Christ. You see, it's not doing ministry. It's not building each other up. It's not edifying one another. It's not attaining to maturity. It's not recognizing the gifts that Christ has given to each of us and exercising them. And most of all, it's not engaging in this spiritual battle in which we find ourselves. It's not contending for the truth of Christ. The church at the minute certainly doesn't have Christ as its head. And now more than ever, we, we need a head. We need a focus to look towards. We need a locus to gather around. This morning, you need Christ and I need Christ. We need Christ to be the head of the church once again. And praise the Lord, this, this, this passage is peppered with Christ. It's, it's jam-packed with Jesus, start to finish. Um, I love verse 11, the very start of what we read. Look at it again with me. It starts like this. Christ himself gave. You see, in, in this immediate context, Christ is giving um, particular spiritual giftings to equip us to build up the church. But isn't that something, isn't there a universal truth in there? Christ himself gave, that's what he loves to do. He is the gift-giving God. And where do we see that most truly? Well, we see it when Christ gave himself to redeem us from our sins, to reconcile us to God the Father. You know, when he brought us from death to life and from darkness to light, we were saved and we were gifted. We were gifted with forgiveness. We were gifted with mercy. We were gifted with grace. We were ultimately gifted with the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit to live within us, to empower us to do ministry, to become mature and to fight. Christ gave, that's so true, isn't it? And that's the truth again this morning, that Christ longs more than we could possibly know to give himself to us afresh. See, if we are to be a church, be a family which builds each other up, which does ministry, if we're to be a church which exercises our individual giftings in humility to attain to the fullness of Christ and to show the world, to show our region his fullness, if we're to engage in this battle in which we find ourselves and speak Jesus and see things shift in the spiritual atmosphere because of the name of Jesus, then we need Christ to give us the Holy Spirit afresh. And so the challenge and the question with which I'm going to leave us is, are we ready this morning to receive Christ afresh? Are we expecting that God the Father and the Lord Jesus are going to pour out their pour out the Holy Spirit in power upon us. Is that what we're expecting to happen right now? Um, whether you're ready for it or not, we are trusting that God is going to pour out his Holy Spirit. Um, and as James comes up to join me, um, why don't we stand? And we're just going to pray that, the prayer we prayed earlier. But even though we prayed it half an hour ago, we need to pray it again. Um, and so we say, Come, Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you, Holy Spirit. Would you move in power amongst us?